My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Towards the end of 2016, two friends from Melbourne, Megan O'Malley and Gab Murphy, went out for a walk. A year later, they made it home. This duo under the moniker Walk So Good went on an extraordinary journey through Southeast Asia to collect and share stories from some of the people who make our clothes. Can you believe it's nearly April? Fashion Revolution Week is coming up very soon and we're celebrating on the Wardrobe Crisis podcast with a series of episodes starting with this one. As always, we'd love to hear from you and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press and you can find Gab and Meg at Walk So Good. And don't forget to check in with Fashion Revolution. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And if you're feeling flush, I do have a patron page if you fancy contributing. Now, this show was recorded live at the Planet Talks at Worm Adelaide in March, which incidentally... It's one of the most fun and interesting festivals I've ever been to. I seriously came away going, I'm going to move to Adelaide. <laughs> they have good wine as well. As you know, I do love good wine. Anyway, prepare to fall in love with the wonderful Walk So Good Girls as we discuss what it's like to walk in the heat for eight hours straight every day. Seriously, can you imagine? How they dealt with blisters, hunger, anxiety, each other, fighting off snarly dogs, and how it made them more mindful and connected with nature. But probably most importantly, we talk about what they learned from the friends they met along the way. Settle in, it's a good one, this. Thank you all for coming. I'm delighted to be joined today by two fantastic women. Welcome, Gab and Meg. Thank you. Thank you for having us. These two women made an extraordinary journey last year. In September 2016, they set off to walk through Southeast Asia, through Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand, about 3,500 kilometers. It took them a year. We're going to hear today 
how Gab Murphy and Meg O'Malley, calling themselves Walk So Good, journeyed on this voyage of discovery, I'm going to say. Who they met, what they found out about the fashion industry and how our clothes are made, and also about themselves. I'm going to start with you, Megan. You were sitting on your sofa one day reading Dumbo Feather magazine when the universe sent you a message in the form of an article about an Indian adventurer, Satish Kumar. I wonder if you might begin by telling us, how did you feel when you read that story? Who is Satish Kumar and why is he so inspiring? So Satish Kumar is an Indian activist who in the 1960s walked, I think it was 8,000 miles across the world to each of the nuclear capitals to protest nuclear weapons. It was such a peaceful and powerful statement. He met so many people along the way that he could engage with and talk to about this issue. Um, Some women gave him some tea tea bags that he could give to each of the leaders of each of the nuclear capitals. Um, Yeah, and said he said the women told him that when he goes to these capitals, give them to these people and then ask them to, before they press the button, to have a cup of tea, to reflect on the damage that could be done and all of the, the, the implications of pressing that button. And that was pretty amazing. And yeah, I just was struck by what an incredible statement it was. I did a bit of Googling about Satish Kumar, who I actually didn't know about until you introduced me to him, so thank you. But in the 60s, he was inspired by the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who at that time was in his 80s. And what Satish thought was, this guy's in his 80s, he's been sent to jail for protesting for what he believes in. What am I doing? And so that's why he set off on his journey. Gab, did you feel a bit like that? Is that what you thought when you read about his journey of 8,000 kilometres? And I wonder, like... At what point do you think, hey, I'm going to do that? Yeah, well, that was it. That was, I had exactly the same reaction. I thought, this man has done this incredible thing and I'm sitting on the couch reading Dumbo Feather, which is a wonderful magazine, but it's not really changing the world, me reading it right there. So, um, yeah, I instantly felt inspired. I don't drive, I don't ride a bike. I was like, I can walk. I can walk long distances, surely. Um, And I was instantly inspired to do it for something that I really cared about, which was sustainable fashion. And then I told my parents and my dad said, that's the most stupid idea I've ever heard. Um, And refused to talk to me about the idea until mm, a couple of months before we left. May I just ask, is it not true that you had never hiked for more than one day when you thought about going on this hairbrained journey? Very true. I'm not sure where this, like, confidence came from. I'm not normally a super confident person, but, yeah, I'd never done an overnight hike. Not that outdoorsy, really. Not into camping. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's why I was like, oh, I need someone to help me come along and survive because... Obviously, that could be tricky. And, yeah, so I roped Enter him. Gab. Enter Gab. I roped her in and, and pitched it to her. <laughs> okay, yes, Gab, I, what was your reaction? What was your I reaction and what did you This idea sounds absolutely crazy. I'm in. I'm 100% in. But I didn't actually know that Megan hadn't been on an overnight hike before. Yeah. And I discovered this... A long time after I'd said yes to the trip. And I said, Megan, let's do a blog post about our five favourite hikes and we can share it to our three followers. And (laughs) she was like, "Mm, that's going to be difficult because I have been on very few hikes. 
I was like, you do realize we're going for a year, right? <laughs> so we did a practice at Wilson's prom and it did not go well. <laughs> it was terrible. I had a panic attack and we had to go home a day early. Like, it was horrible. Like, <laughs> I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move. It was, yeah. And I wasn't very empathetic at all. I said, oh, don't worry, I have panic attacks all the time. Can you still see? Oh, you've still got your vision, you're fine. <laughs> This is why she needed you. We're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty about how it was to do that walk for a whole year. But I want to just ask you, Gab, what did you hope to achieve by Walk So Good? And perhaps you might like to share with us the point of it, the meaning of it, and what you did and what you tried to find out and share. Um, I think, for me, I, I was never really a, a huge fashion person, but I have a strong passion for human rights and for the planet that we all live on and share. And uh, just realising how harmful our um, system can be in terms of production and consumption, um, the aim for Walk So Good was to collect human stories, make them accessible to people, and uh, really put a face and identity to the people making our clothes. And we wanted to promote people who were doing the right thing and share the positive stories rather than all the doom and gloom and everything's awful and you may as well give up because things are too hard and we're all going to die. So we wanted to really focus on people that aren't going against the grain of the big brands and that are, you know, upcycling fabrics and using solar power and treating their workers fairly, giving them maternity leave, like simple things that we probably take for granted in Australia. Video was absolutely key to your message because that's how you're disseminating these stories. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, like how you spread the word? Uh, so, yeah, the aim was to basically, yeah, share these stories in a way that was digestible. And um, people have very short attention spans these days. Uh, so having two-minute videos was a really good way, I think, for us, where we'd just have um, a quick introduction of who we're talking to, why they're doing what they're doing with their brand or as a sewer or worker, and um, something that like a little story that they have to and they bring them to life, which is nice. And it really works. And I would mm. encourage everyone who's interested, which is everyone, right, mm -hmm. to hop onto the Walk So Good website because you can watch these videos. And it's delightful. And as Gab said in this conversation around ethics and sustainability in terms of who makes our clothes, we often hear in the media some of the really grim stories. And we do need to hear them. We need to be aware of that. But it's very inspiring to then see the other side about some of the beauty of craft and some of the fabulous, inspiring stories about women being uplifted by the fashion industry and by economic empowerment that can come from making our clothes. But why did you go to Southeast Asia? What, tell us a little bit about the context. How did you decide where to go and why? <laughs> okay. Um, well, the thing is, we get a lot of our clothing from Southeast Asia in Australia. So a lot of our clothing is made in China and Bangladesh and India. And uh, quite often these countries are places where it is really easy to exploit human rights and it's really easy to exploit the planet. Um, so we wanted to go and see people that are doing the right thing even though it's, it's so easy to get away with doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. So we decided on... 
yeah, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos. I'm going to just throw this in here if people aren't aware that 92% of the clothing and accessories sold in Australia are made offshore. So we really don't produce very much fashion in Australia anymore. You began in Ho Chi Minh, is that right? Yes. I want to talk about, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of who they met and what they learned. But I want to ask you about before you got there. Let's talk about the preparation. So you're walking six to eight hours a day, but I believe there were some 11 hour days. That's hectic. Yes. Let's talk about training. How did you prepare? Training. Do you want to go first? I didn't. (laughs) I didn't train at all. I basically indulged in as much food as possible because I was like, well, soon I won't be able to have access to any of this food and we're going to lose so much weight while we're walking, so I'll just put on heaps of weight. And that's what I did and I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was your training. (laughs) And then I was a little bit more serious. So um, I loaded my bag with textbooks and made it really heavy and then walked around my neighbourhood for five kilometres and then I went to the physio with niggly knee pains and she was like, ooh, five kilometres, maybe you should up that a little bit. And I was like, okay, sure. So I would walk seven kilometres to the French bakery, have a break, seven kilometres back. And then there was like a chocolate shop that was just seven and a half kilometres away and seven and a half kilometres. So it was, yeah, it was realistic um, because we saw lots of French bakeries and chocolate shops. I love how your training was essentially both of you just baked goods. Yeah. That's how you do it. Let's talk about the 11-hour days. How hard was this mission of walking through heat when you're not an experienced hiker and you know that it's going on and on and on? I mean, this was a year. Let's talk about what it was like physically. Yeah, that... The, the biggest day I think we did was 37 kilometres-ish, I think, and it was stinking hot and we were walking into Phnom Penh, so we couldn't just, like, set up a tent and it would be fine because there was no room to set up a tent. And every time we stopped to ask somebody if, where there was accommodation, they were like, just one kilometre, just one kilometre, and so we'd walk one kilometre and then we'd be like, mm, nowhere to stay, and then ask the next person, just one kilometre, just one kilometre, and it went on for about... So eight, long. Eight kilometres. And we'd started off the day so strong. We were like, yeah, we can walk. We, we, we only walked to here. And then we're like, no, let's keep going to Phnom Penh. We can do this. And, yeah, by the end, I was, like, singing out loud the songs of Hamilton the musical <laughs> to try and keep me awake and sane. Um, Gab had lost it. She was like, mm-hmm, get me to accommodation now. And it was, yeah, it was really hard. But... We ended up getting pretty fit with some of the other days. Like, that was, that was a unique situation. But, yeah, the heat was hard, though. Okay, let's talk about the benefits of walking. Gab, I would love for you just to share with us a little bit about the mindfulness of walking, the feeling that you can get from just, I'm going to say plodding, but, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and, and that repetitive action of, is it a moment where you realise that you're out of yourself and you've stopped perhaps being anxious? Let's talk about that. There's actually a quote um, from Satish Kumar, which I loved. And he says, by walking, you connect to the earth. Wow, that's perfect. That's actually what it felt like. Um, I don't think you realise how disconnected you are from the planet and the world around you until you are outside and living in it every day and you're so reliant on the weather and you're so reliant on shade so you don't get heat stroke and reliant on water supply 
Um, and we, it became so meditative at the end of our walk. It was, it was almost as if when we had our rest days, we got really like anxious because we wanted to be out there and, and plodding along and just you become so mindful in what's going on around you. You notice the rice harvest. We watched the whole rice harvest from start to finish in different areas. We, you know, noticed trees coming in. We noticed winds and rains and storms. And uh, it's something that I don't think we get access to in our daily lives here because quite often we're in buildings and go in buses and we're not interacting with our environment as much. And I think that makes it really easy to forget that we're living on this one planet with lots of finite resources. So, yeah, it was interesting that we're promoting slow fashion and then by slowing down ourselves, we realised how how important and how disconnected yeah. we had been. Because the walk originally was just a gimmick to get people interested. It was like, <laughs> we'll walk really far and then people will listen to us. Um, <laughs> but it ended up being, yeah, just something... So we'd walk through places that tourist buses would go straight through and we'd meet all these incredible people. And, yeah, you just felt so connected to... And you got a great understanding to the of the culture that you were in that you wouldn't get if you were just hanging out in the major tourist areas. It was... Yeah, it was amazing. We should tell Claire about the reactions that we got when we told the locals that we're walking. Oh, yeah. Because it sounds really weird, but when you're in Bangkok and you're like, they're like, where are you going? And you're like, oh, we're going to Chiang Mai. And they're like, we're walking there, which is like, like about no. 600, 800 kilometres. They're just like, no, 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 no. Yeah, sometimes we get the thumbs up, strong lady. And then other times we'd be like, that somebody would pull up beside us and be like, get in our car, please, free, 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 just get in our car. And we're like, no, no, we, we want to walk. We had to learn the word for walk in every single language we were there because so many people would stop to offer us lifts and... And give us food. Yeah, You got incredible. so many bananas and mangoes. Yeah. We got to the stage where we would just have our morning tea break and be like, what'd you get? And we'd like <laughs> share them. Yeah, and I don't eat bananas, so this one lady gave us eight bananas one day and Gab put in the effort and... <laughs> I ate eight bananas. It was a lot of potassium. Yeah, it was, yeah, good, good effort. <laughs> Meg, you have shared on your blog that you suffer from anxiety, that you're not the world's most chilled out person when faced with new situations or perhaps with stressful situations. I wonder if you might like to just share a little bit about how walking can help with that, because I think it's interesting, this idea of connection, slowing down. How did you feel when you were in these new places and you weren't necessarily sure where you were going to end up or if the meetings would happen or, you know, where your next banana was coming from? Yeah, look at me now. You can tell I'm not a, <laughs> an, a bit of an anxious person. Um, solid rock. But, um, yeah... Because we only had to walk every day, the anxiety levels of the shoulds, like, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, that was like, they didn't exist because you weren't writing lists to tick off and, and that was kind of amazing. So that was great. For me, the anxiety came in the preparation and the, the practice hike and um, all of that. That was, yeah, I, and I did what I normally do and over-prepared. But, yeah, the walking... I would get most anxious when we stopped in capital cities. Um, but, gosh, it's great. I wish I could walk that much every day because you feel so good and you feel healthy. Yeah, 
Mm. I mean, you get a lot of time in your head. I got very bored of myself sometimes, so I'd whack on a podcast and um, be transported away. But, yeah, it was it was pretty incredible. I mean, I got really anxious about eating because I basically ate rice and greens and egg for about 10 months um, <laughs> of the trip to the point where my body rejected it by the end. It was like, nope not happening um and I got really quite anxious about the dog situation we were attacked by dogs nearly every day you were attacked so by dogs that was fun and Gab is like this weirdo like she, these crazy vicious dogs come towards her and she's like and steps towards them no worries whereas I'm like I'm gonna die I'm gonna die and like I had we had selfie sticks but we never used them for selfies we just used them for self-defense like we all you had to do was just like raise them and then the dogs would we go away we never dogs. hit any dogs promise <laughs> or like pretend to pick up a rock and then they'd run away which is sad because that means they're being mistreated but it was very helpful for not being dead yeah but I also got bitten by a dog yes. at one stage very dramatic I had to get rabies shots at some very dodgy hospitals Cautionary tale. I'm not sure what it is. Always pack a selfie stick. Um, Megan, Be scared I want, of the dogs. <laughs> I want to get into this idea of slow, slowing down, but also making that connection with slow fashion. Gab worked for a time for a New York-based outfit called Project Just, which was, unfortunately, it's actually finished now, but it was a website which sought to be promoting transparency in the fashion industry and sharing information behind some of the big brands that you would recognise. Yeah, so I think I've probably read more sustainability reports for fashion brands than anybody on the planet. They are heavy reading, and especially if they've been translated, it's it's good fun. But um, I was a head head of research at Project Just, and... um, we developed this strategy of analysing the brands and trying to work out how sustainable they are. And we developed this um, seal of approval. So the brands had to be like, they had to tick all these boxes. So they had to be great environmentally. They had to be treating the people fairly. They had to have intentions of improving. They had to have, you know, innovation involved in their brand. And we struggled to find brands that could fit those categories. There aren't a lot out there that are ticking all the boxes. And one of the things I realised on this trip was that it's okay not to be perfect. It's all a journey, um, to use that overused word. Um, And people are are trying. As long as they're putting in the effort and it's genuine and it's heartfelt, as long as they're creating impact that is positive, it's okay that, you know, they haven't quite mastered the environmental aspect or they haven't quite mastered, you know, innovating magical fabrics. So, yeah, there's that. And then what I also found was when we came, I thought I kind of knew where my clothes had come from and how they were made. I mean, I read so many hundreds of, hundreds of hours of research. And when you get there and you see it being made and you, you learn and you try to work out, like weaving, it's a magical thing that we saw over and over again. And no matter how hard I tried to get my brain to, you know, wrap around the concept of weaving, I just couldn't do it. And it it was like magic. And connecting to those stories and connecting to how it was made, I I don't think I could ever throw away something that I had that connection to, that, you know, that understanding of. We we kept repeating that we wished that um, we could bring everybody along because, yeah, it, it is 
just <laughs> with the weaving thing, like they call um, weaving the traditional computers, like the original computer, because weaving, it's like over and under weft and um, it's binary code. So it's uh, like one zero zero one zero. Warp and weft. Yes, yes, exactly. And so it was really fascinating. They're actually coding, coding their textiles, which is really cool. Okay, so Gab, is it fair to say you were not a big fashion fan before you embarked on Walk So Good? I mean, actually, you thought fashion was kind of stupid and that we needed much less stuff and that clothes didn't matter. Yeah, my solution was, oh, just stop making stuff. We don't need anything. Um, and I would regularly turn up to university in pyjamas. Um, that's where Megan and I met at a sustainability class, actually. And Megan always came to class looking fabulous and gorgeous, these beautiful outfits. I think I wore the same thing nearly every single class and, you know, hair all over the place. <laughs> You're also one of six kids, is that right? Yeah, one of six and kids. And so growing up, you kind of shared clothes. You weren't really mm. running out to the shopping centre. You grew up in, on a farm yeah, near Mildura. Yeah, so grew up in Mildura on a vineyard there. And we have a really large family, so we had a lot of hand-me-down clothes and... We didn't have a lot of shops at the time and my mum, who's here today, she made a lot of my clothes as well. If I wanted something, we would make a trip to Spotlight and I got to choose the material and that was great fun. But I, I never really thought of clothes as art and now when I see it being made and see how much passion and work goes into it and see the beautiful outfits that Megan can come up with, it, it's really, it's art. It's art in the flesh, you can see it. And I love watching people at the festival as well. I've just been people watching and looking at all the fabulous things that people are wearing. Is that one of the things that changed fundamentally for you going on this trip? Mm, yes, definitely. And uh, I'm a bit of a pessimist and a, a cynic. But just a bit. <laughs> Megan called me worst case scenario, Gab, because every time I saw her looking at like a, a green puddle, I'd be like, don't look at it, you'll get dengue. <laughs> she was like, how can I get dengue from looking? <laughs> every time we would like feel, oh, no, we've got dengue. We've got dengue. We have dengue. We don't have dengue. <laughs> every time. All of the time. Yeah, like, we rush every day like, towards Zika, the end. Zika. I was like, like <laughs> it was insane. Okay, but through all of that, having not got dengue, not got Zika, so, but you did have heat exhaustion, is it, let's talk about how a bit more about how seeing some of these embroiderers, for example, or going in to visit someone's house where they're weaving something and seeing the artistry behind that process and how connected people are to the garments that we potentially turf out after just four whales. How did that kind of change your thinking? Yeah, so uh, with the fundamental changes of how I think about clothes, uh, 100%. Yeah, I have so much more respect for them. I really appreciate how they're made and the stories that come with them and the stories that are behind them. Um, and I, I guess our faith in humanity was also restored because when we were meeting these people, we didn't expect to have such amazing and deep connections with them. Um, and, you know, there was obviously language and cultural barriers, but at the end of the day, we had so much more in common than we thought we would ever have. And um, sharing food and sharing laughter and sharing a love of fashion with 
people who are making it with their hands was really amazing. I love it so much. It's my favourite. This is, this is why I like this conversation. It doesn't all have to be global warming's going to kill us. Probably is. <laughs> I'm a um, climate optimist. But I love these stories that really do uplift us because we need them. If we're going to change systems, we need to have hope and we need to feel that we have... I don't know, something good to get behind, don't we? But you know what we haven't done? We haven't explained, and I haven't asked, how on earth you track down people? And I know that when you arrived in Ho Chi Minh, that you did do a bit of walking down the street, imagining that you would just happen upon an awesome seamstress who would say, hey, you look like you ought to come to my house. That isn't how it works, is it? How did you get access? Yeah, so our expectations were a little unrealistic at the start, um, but... So I reached out to everybody I could, all of my networks, trying to find anybody that could help us. And then... So brands? Are we talking about fashion brands here? Some of the bigger brands that, that, you know, market themselves as sustainable. So it was a lot of small brands, a lot of small organisations. We went to a couple of really big factories. So we went to... um, the factory that makes the girlfriend collective leggings um, and that was really cool and innovative and that was yeah it was cool to see it on a large scale but mostly it was small and then we did <laughs> we did think that when we walked through Vietnam especially at the start so we saw a few people in Ho Chi Minh and then when we walked through Vietnam we were thinking we we're just going to meet a person on the road who'll say oh my cousin does this amazing fashion thing and come to my village and we will you know show you and you can interview and we didn't speak to anybody, I think, that spoke English, except for when we did a quick um, couch surfing episode. But um, for the first three weeks, no one spoke English to us, and it was really hard. So was it literally about emailing brands before you went saying, we're not professional auditors, we're curious customers, we're fashion wearers and fans, and we would like to see your process? Is that how you did it? I mean, yeah. it's quite, it's full on. We were just like cold emailing people and saying, can we hear your story? And most of the small brands, they don't have a huge marketing budget. Um, So they were like, yes, please, come and tell our story. Um, And they were so, you know, welcoming and wonderful. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, the bigger brands didn't want us to come to their factories, but that's okay. I know you don't know because you didn't have a response, but we did speak before the session about what we could guess might be some of the reasons that big brands wouldn't let you come and see their processes and we thought that maybe I mean do you want to share about some of your thoughts on that because it could be that brands are very careful about how their social media is curated and looks and so to have two unknown women come in who they're not familiar with who haven't gone through a PR or a Uh, an NGO or a partner organisation seem to be a bit scary, I don't know. Or it could be they've got something to hide. I mean, what's your feeling on why it was quite hard to get access? Yeah, I I definitely don't think it was because they had something to hide. I just think it's because we didn't have enough followers, Um, which is sad. But, um... (laughs) Follow Walk So Good on Instagram, (laughs) please. I think it had a lot to do with that and also how, you know brand image and the control of that um there's a lot that goes on into a brand image and it's not always you know docs coming to interview people but also it's quite weird like i'm sorry guys but just two (laughs) random women just deciding to walk through four countries and their mission is to come and have a look at factories it's not common no there's no precedent we got a lot of 
Yeah, I don't, I don't think... And then people would say, yes, we're walking. And they say, oh, working, excellent, good job. Where are you working? And we'd be like, no, walking. No, working, yes. And they'd look at me like, we understood. Stop it. <laughs> OK, I want to just um, focus in now on some of the stories that you heard. Gab, would you like to share... Just pick a favourite. Tell us a story of someone that you went to meet who really inspired you. Uh, gosh... Okay, there's so many to choose from. This is really hard. Um, one of my favourite uh, stories is actually about um, Manok, who's from Dignity Returns in Bangkok, in Thailand. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were working in a large factory in Thailand and um, the factory had really, really terrible conditions um, and you would be fined... Um, was it 2,000 baht? 2,000 baht for yawning. Which is like $80. Yeah. Yeah. And then you would be fined a further... I can't remember how much it was. 300 baht for eating a lemon during your shift. And there weren't many breaks. People were working for days at a time. If they had large orders coming in, uh, the workers were actually given uh, yaba, which is a methamphetamine. Um, So they were... They could stay awake for days at a time and just finish large quantities. Yeah, they gave and pregnant women these things as well. Yeah, and, so like, it was, it's pretty horrific, the story. Yeah, so, the, yeah, pregnant women were having miscarriages. They, and when the auditors would come in from overseas, they would clear, clear up the factory, they would allow them in certain areas, and then they would just, like, after the audit had been finished, they would go back. And the factory ended up closing down due to severe mismanagement. And all of these workers were left without pay. They had no compensation. And so what they did was, like, realise how horribly they'd been treated. And they all came together and they protested for three months at the front of the the labour building in Thailand and they helped get the labour laws changed in Thailand. And then they started their own factory where they respect each other and they take care of themselves. They are working towards the global development goals. And, yeah, it was just... Yeah, they t- when we interviewed him, he talked about... Yeah, yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing. And when we talked to him, he talked about, yeah, just freedom. It was like, we have this freedom. We go home at five and we have lives, you know, outside of our jobs, which is something we kind of take for granted. I mean, some of us make ourselves busy, but we don't have to be that busy in a lot of places. But... Yeah, just that freedom to... And also, he was helping migrant workers as well. So a lot of people come into Thailand illegally and he was he was providing help for them, try and make them become legal. He was standing up to the police for them. He had learnt um, Burmese and Khmer so that he could help them. He was an incredible man. Do you have a favourite story or perhaps another story that you'd like to share about meeting with someone who's perhaps making and sewing our clothes? Yeah, so... A lot of times when we interviewed people who were making our clothes, it was really hard to get a story out of out of them because um, we'd ask them questions and they say, and they would be like, "What do you love about your job?" And they'd say, "It pays the bills, and I can, you know, I can feed my family." And you'd be like, "Oh, right, okay, privileged white person question," um, and yeah. For a lot of people, it was just a job. It wasn't their passion. It wasn't, you know, this crazy, big, amazing thing in their lives. It just 
help support them in their lives. And I think, yeah, we sometimes romanticise this idea of we're going to, you know, provide jobs and it's going to be amazing and they're going to, you know, leave their best lives. And a lot of time it's more about, it's more just about, you know, providing for your family, something that, again, we take for granted. It's just a, a common thing. But, yeah, we we met the, the women from Dorsu who just lovely, lovely ladies. And they, so Kuntia had worked in garment factories before and she so, was a co-founder. So, so just share what Dorsu is. If oh, people sorry. Don't know Dorsu the... is a brand, a fashion brand that um, creates essentials from, uh, clothes, from fabrics that have been left over from large garment factory production in Phnom Penh. So it's limited collections because they never know what they're going to get and what's going to be made. And so Kuntia and Hannah started up this brand. Hannah's Australian and Kuntia is Khmer. And um, it's kind of a beautiful story of friendship. Um, when we interviewed them, they, there was even tears. Um, we weren't allowed to show the tears. We were told, don't show those, cut that out. But it was really beautiful because they're best friends and they've gone through so much together and they're trying so hard. It's not easy to be ethical. You'd think it would be easier to do the right thing than to do the wrong thing, but it, it just doesn't work that way at all. And they've been through so much to try and live their values and create a brand that, you know. And I think one of the sweetest things about their story of friendship is when they first met, they couldn't speak each other's language. So uh, Kuntia learnt to speak English and Hannah learnt Khmer, so now they can speak to each other in whatever yeah. language they choose, yeah. It's fundamental, isn't it? Like this whole thing, I'm coming back to where we began, that people think that potentially fashion isn't for everyone. Fashion's a frivolous thing, fashion's something that silly women like. I hate that, by the way. But actually, it's fundamental. This is, this is human connection. This is craft. This is survival. It's economics. It's big business. But as fundamentally, it's relationships. That's what this is. And that's why it's such a powerful forum to make change in the world. Anyway, <laughs> I want to end, as you just mentioned, friendship, with just before we throw this open to some questions for, from you, um, with what you guys learnt and how you kind of grew together and what you found out together and what it was like to come home. <laughs> oh, coming home was actually really a massive struggle for me. I'm going from living this like magical life where I'm out in the world every day going on this grand adventure with a fantastic friend who makes me laugh every day to back to a nine to five and, you know, people stuck in their bubble and not talking to each other. And it was just, it was incredibly stressful and i I found it really, really hard to, to get back. I'm sure you learnt so very much, but if you had to think of one thing that changed you or that you learnt from this experience, what might it be? Um, I think adaptability. Like, um, the, well, obviously, um, I definitely have faith in humanity restored, but adaptability of humans. Um, I think we learnt so much from the culture in Southeast Asia in terms of they do have a minimalist start lifestyle, but it's not chosen minimalism. It's um, something that they quite often don't have a choice with. And so that means that a lot of people are fixers. So they have this fixing economy where um, you are a mechanic. You can fix your bike. You don't go buy a new one. You repair your clothes. You don't just throw them out and buy new ones. You fix things. And so it was really cool to 
practice because we had to practice those skills too because we we're living out of a backpack. So practicing fixing things and tying knots and making clotheslines out of shoelaces. Like, Fair. yeah, I think human adaptability is what will help the world solve yeah. our problems. Love. I'm just going to jump onto you, Megan. Then we're going to run out of time. But what would you say was one of the real fundamental things that changed your mindset about this trip? I read Satyush's story and I heard these amazing stories that he had, you know, met all these amazing people. And I didn't really expect to meet all those amazing people. But just the sheer generosity of human spirit and kindness and, yeah, it was incredible um, how, you know, you could just walk up to someone and say, can we stay in the temple? And they'd be like, oh, maybe don't stay there. Stay at our house. And we didn't speak a word of, you know, each other's languages. And then they'd feed us this big feast and Gab would cry. And, um, <laughs> Which is actually really inappropriate in Thai culture to cry at the dinner table. <laughs> um, yeah, just an overwhelming connection to, to humans. And it was pretty spectacular. I didn't expect that to happen at all. And I'm... Yeah, I just think back. It you've kind of it kind of go back into real life, and it just is like, oh, just pick up where I left off, and then I scroll through my phone. I'll be like, oh yeah, I did this thing with all these incredible people along the way, and it's just yeah, it's really cool. You are fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I love it. It's a good news story. We need more of them. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you